You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. A better administrative experience makes for a better constituent experience when designing products for the government. This is really, really important for all of my fellow state and local government folks, whether you be a private sector player or a public sector player. Keep an eye to how you are amplifying and empathizing with the experiences of our frontline workers in state and local government, those who are delivering the services to our constituents in need. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And one of the more interesting intersections I've seen in the past couple years has been technology and public service. And a lot of you are probably thinking, isn't that what government has done now for decades? Trying to modernize their systems to support their citizens? And you wouldn't be wrong, but not like this. There's been an extreme focus on digital equity, especially throughout the pandemic, ensuring everyone has access to services. And that isn't just making sure services are available, but making them available to all. How do you reach someone that doesn't have access to a cell phone or even internet? These are larger problems that are now being looked at by not only government agencies, but not-for-profits looking to serve the global good. And the focus on global good is only going to grow stronger and stronger regardless of partisanship because the younger generations feel this responsibility very deeply. They are called to public service and these groups that have only known technology their whole lives will bring that experience to bear to solve some of these more difficult foundational challenges. And my guest today really personifies this in the work that she's doing. Ayushi Roy is a fellow at the Foundation for New America and is in her first term of office at 18F as the Director of State and Local Government Technology. 18F is housed in the Technology Transformation Services Group of the Federal General Services Administration, and her work focuses on more equitably delivering government services to our most vulnerable constituents. Some of the programs she's worked on have included modernizing Wisconsin's legacy system for unemployment insurance, helping to hire the first cohort of dedicated product managers for the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid, and securing the historic approval for login.gov to serve state and local governments for the first time. She also worked on improving the grants infrastructure for Medicaid and the Children Health Insurance Program, CHIP, which provides health care for more than 70 million Americans, including 9 million children. Ayushi, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. It's great to be here. So among other things because you have a lot going on. You're, you're also a, a fellow at the New America Foundation. Help us understand what the New America Foundation does and what your role is there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I won't claim to speak on behalf of the entire New America Foundation, but I'm working specifically with a relatively new lab within the foundation called the New Practice Lab. The New Practice Lab sits within the public interest technology arm of the New America Foundation. And what they were founded to do is really neat. It's basically focused on 
product-driven policymaking is kind of the way I think about it. So remember the times of data-driven policymaking? That was a thing. <laughs> we all remember that. Um, and I think what we've kind of learned as a sort of broader community is that data doesn't live in isolation, right? Data is sort of a thing that we collect because of the products and services that we provide our constituents. And so how can we be really mindful of the bottlenecks in those products and services as they're delivered to the public and use those bottlenecks to then sort of teach and form our policymakers and legislators so we can write better policy. And that way, as a result, there's a positive feedback loop between technology and policy. Um, and that's sort of the, the mission of the new practice lab. That's really interesting. So how much are you driving touch points? So you mentioned some of the services that are already being deployed and there's data that is coming from those services, but how much is this program actually catalyzing new touch points to drive strategic data moving forward? Yeah. So this program, so the way that I describe it is the goal of the lab is put to, or the, I should say the tactics of the lab are to facilitate a variety of research sprints or discovery sprints. And I'm kind of air quoting here because I know the word sprint is typically used in a sort of iterative software development world to mean the quick deployment of various software, right? But in our case, what we're doing is we're prototyping a variety of different engagement points, to your point, to, you know, to what you said earlier, so that we can test the way that various claimants, for example, of a public benefit system interact with that government service. And then we can use those prototypes and the data collected to go back to policymakers in various demos and other forms and say, hey, look, here's what you thought was going to happen when you wrote XYZ. And here's what really happened. Because the reality is that policy and delivery of that policy are very different worlds. And often the delivery of that policy, the information around delivery is not used to cycle back and inform policymakers on how what they wrote did or did not work out. Um, and that's sort of the engagement points and data, the data that is collected by the lab and how it's shared out. That I mean, that's incredibly interesting to me. So when we're looking at some of the, the more strategic touch points happening right now, it kind of brings to mind the, the new understanding of what a citizen experience can look like. Correct. And especially a digital citizen experience, because when we look at citizen experience, it could be in person, it can be digital. Right. How is data being pulled from those type of touch points to provide an Amazon-like experience where they're dialing up complimentary services and um, things that will help delight citizens, for lack of a better phrase? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, a couple things there. I think you touched on a lot of really good stuff, Brian. A um, couple things there. First is I'm going to kind of navigate us away from the framing of citizen experience more towards constituent experience. And that might sound like a sort of, you know, linguistic, simple difference, but it's actually a really big one because public services in the government context aren't always meant for the documented, right? The identified, the banked. It's meant for a variety of constituents. And especially right now, as I work on unemployment insurance, this is a really big conversation we're having around how do we support folks with, for example, foreign passports? Who are working in this country, right? How do we support a variety of different people who may not be citizens, voting citizens, but still actually pay into a system and deserve the benefits from it? 
Um, so that's one uh, just quick thing. Um, but as far as your question around how we collect data, I actually don't know that the Amazon experience <laughs> is the North Star that we're going for. And if you just said that as sort of like a an example. But. Well, no, I, I I know when when people talk around customer experience and, yeah. and some of the analysts that I've spoken to, they look at an Amazon experience as something that perhaps could be to, uh, to steal your phrase a north star for government just because technically it's it's generally been behind but obviously they're not looking to dial up services that they're they're going to pay for uh-huh. but the idea is to have services that are again complementary to what they're looking at now so if i'm going to renew my driver's license perhaps it might make sense to also ask them around vehicle registration or mm. a, a, other analogous components to whatever they're asking for in, mm-hmm. in the initial touch paint. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that government hasn't done. Everything's been kind of facilitated Side in a vacuum. Mode. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really big conversation at play right now is this sort of, there, there's two pieces of that, right? The first at the state and local level is the conversation around shared services. So what does it mean for us to not build the same service 50 different times, frankly, 55 different times, including the territories, right? What does it mean for us to there, for there to be actually a centralized delivery, even for maybe pieces of that public benefit? Um, and the second conversation, one that you're touching on is what can we do for services that actually require similar information and put a similar type of burden on the claimant or the constituent? Um, a good example is with unemployment insurance and SNAP benefits. So we're actually, uh, we just spoke with Scott Jensen and his team at the Rhode Island Innovation Policy Lab, and they're doing some really fantastic work here around if a claimant um, fills in their UI app, their unemployment insurance application, what would would happen if we could just provide a pop-up and say, hey, did you know you also actually could autofill your FAFSA with this information and get a higher education degree from your local community college? Or, hey, you actually auto-qualify for SNAP benefits. Would you like food stamps for your family or for yourself? Um, And that's a conversation that's very much happening and is really only possible in a world where the, first of all, technical debt has to be addressed for these very, very old systems. And second of all, there's been this relatively more recent move to cloud services and hosting a lot of these public benefits applications on the cloud. Um, And this is a much larger story that we can get into around the way in which um, I'd argue, I was talking about this with uh, Dave C., who runs the Technology and Transformation Services Division of the U.S. General Services um, Admin. And we were talking about the way in which state and locals have arguably been set back because of stimulus funding in the past and that's kind of delayed their um, adopting of cloud services. But a lot of those patterns are important to just lay the infrastructure for us to begin talking about both that shared services as well as that sort of, if you want to call it the Amazon experience, where they're directed towards similar products. Such a good point in terms of them being set back. And you mentioned stimulus. On the back end of COVID as well, you had state and localities that were struggling because the tax revenues that they're usually incurring and and pulling in to be able to 
drive innovation within some of their some of their areas on behalf of their constituents just wasn't there. So again, falling behind and and bridging that gap just became even more difficult, right? Yeah, and it's and it's actually far more than tax revenue. So you know the technology adoption at the federal level versus at the state and local level is just a whole different world um, on a variety of different fronts. But if we're talking about the dollars involved, right? Um, states rely on bonds. The feds don't. <laughs> uh, and debt instruments in the context of the state, as a result, are just very, very different from the federal government. Money feels a lot more real, a lot more, there's a lot more sort of the sticklerness to money. <laughs> it's not a technical term uh, at the state level that isn't the same in the federal level. And we saw this in 2009, right? So this is the stimulus conversation. We, I, I would say, lost like five, four to five years in getting onto the cloud because agencies could now buy servers with that capital expenditure funding from the stimulus, but they couldn't buy AWS with that. Um, and the way in which we think of technology at the state level in particular as being funded by CapEx and not operating expenditures is really a big, big, I would say one of the roots of the problem. Um, and there are many thinkers who've, who've written about this extensively. Um, you know, of course, beyond Dave at TTS, um, even professors like David Eaves at Harvard Kennedy School are talking about this. I mean, there's sort of um, a, in order to de-risk government dollars at the state level, we need to think of technology and technology modernization for our public services as an annual expense, as a constant expenditure, not a one-time thing. It's not the roof replacement, right? This is the cleaning. This is the regular cleaning that your house needs. This is the regular support that your house needs. Um, and until we begin to re-envision technology infrastructure from that standpoint, I think that we're really holding back our state and local government's ability to serve their people. That's a really good analogy. I like how you compared it there. And when I think of, I, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day around IT modernization versus digital transformation, and they mm -hmm. often get tossed in at the same time. And mm -hmm. to me, they're, they're different. Mm -hmm. IT modernization is really just modernization for modernization's sake. Yeah. Our stuff is old. We need new stuff. We have an yeah. old car in the driveway. I want to get a new car. Yeah. And digital transformation is really strategically looking at the challenges that you have as an organization and saying, I'm not just going to replace this with something new. Mm -hmm. I'm going to replace this with something that's going to serve our mission mm -hmm. and and affect the entire enterprise. Yeah. Um, I can actually give another analogy too for that. I mean, this is kind of the way that I've seen it play out. And I it, it, it deeply frustrates me because those two terms are often seen as analogous, like you said. Um, the simple example in my head is modernization, right? It could be akin to taking a paper form and putting that paper form online, doing nothing more to the form, just putting it online, right? That would be modernization. Your job would be done. You'd be like, all right, we're good. Peace out. <laughs> Digitization or digital transformation, which I know is a really overused phrase at this point, but what that means to me is you don't just take the form and you put it online. You actually plain languageify the form and make sure that people, constituents, get what the heck the form's really saying. 
you take a look at whether the form is asking the right questions and capturing the right data, the right metrics, the right information to make sure you're serving your claimants or your applicants in the right, in the right ways. All of that extra step beyond just putting it online, right? Modernizing the database, cleaning up that sort of infrastructure, making sure that the way that you're building actually involves CICD pipelines. All of that work to me is more in the vein of transformation and hopefully with an eye to equity and serving more of maybe a latent constituency that isn't being currently served as opposed to just modernization, which is just making an analog thing digital. And to expound there a little bit, I also think too, it's understanding that this form is a catalyst for other processes that mm-hmm. could be automated in the in the backside of, of everything to drive things forward and become more efficient. So right. now you've digitized a form, you built process into it, and then you're ingesting data off that form mm-hmm. that you as an organization can use. Do you have some examples of, of organizations that you feel are doing it really well right now in that regard? Doing the sort of the transformation, if you will. Full strategic transformation at the state and local level where they're really looking back office to full on front end experience and really trying to drive uh, value throughout that entire chain. You know, there's a lot of folks actually doing it really well. Um, And one of the, one of the, um, uh, very technical terms that we've been using here at the New America Foundation on this unemployment sprint uh, with a hat tip here to Marina Nietzsche is uh, the phrase pockets of goodness. We've been finding a lot of pockets of goodness, <laughs> even in the sort of um, otherwise sort of tragic environment that we've seen around unemployment insurance. I'll say, well, in this COVID area too, we can use some pockets of goodness. We really could, you know, and, and I, I think... I also want to just encourage the many listeners who might be in a similar place as I am in my work to also kind of come at our work with a place of empathy for the state and local administrators, right? I mean, these are folks who've been in it, frontline workers particularly. And um, these are folks who are day in, day out managing an incredible backlog of people who their own constituent base who can't make ends meet, who can't feed their family, who can't support the roof over their head, what have you. I mean, we've seen so many horrible stories and um, heartbreaking stories. And I, I recognize that a lot of these state and local administrators have been sort of hounded over the head with what isn't going well. And I think it's really important to actually take a look at, well, here, here are the small things that are going well, even if they're really, really small. Um, one of the examples I'll point to is, is sort of back at Rhode Island, actually. So um, the team for the state of Rhode Island did this really neat thing where they kind of turned the unemployment insurance problem on their head and said, okay, what if we thought of the ultimate goal as actually helping people get back to sustainable work, right? Not having to be reliant on this insurance benefits program. And they began creating a job tracker using a variety of um, sort of very smart um, intelligence, you know, artificial intelligence, collecting sort of job opportunities, and then doing a jobs matching with folks that were applying for UI. And what's really neat there is they began to create, they began, they created an opportunity to collect their own type of information beyond what is required by 
the US DOL, Department of Labor, for unemployment insurance. They collected their own sort of demographic data, their own industry data, et cetera, by encouraging their constituency to apply to this job tracking, job matching program. And then they would use that job matching form to feed information automatically into unemployment recertification so that claimants wouldn't have to go through the burden of reapplying um, uh, and refilling all that information when that information could be auto-populated by the job snatcher. Um, and sort of, it, it just really, I, I use that example because it was so incredible to me as a listener of their work, how they've been able to take the problem, take a step back and really rethink creatively how they could best serve their public. And the I, the intentionality here was to serving the public as opposed to, which you might think is, duh, what else are we here for? <laughs> you know, we're, we're the government, we're supposed to serve the public. Well, there's actually been a lot of focus, particularly around unemployment insurance to prevent service. And it isn't necessarily stated in that way. You'll often hear it more as preventing fraudsters, preventing fraud. That's been a really big conversation in the unemployment insurance space. But what does preventing fraud really mean, right? If your mission as an organization, as a state organization, is to prevent fraud, that means that you're preventing access to constituents because you're coming at them from the standpoint of guilty until proven otherwise, rather than uh, eligible until proven otherwise. And I think a lot of state organizations are have not yet accepted the notion that there will be a certain amount of fraud that we have to accept in order to make sure that we're accessing, that we're reaching all of our eligible population as much as we possibly can. Um, and I think that's just been really missed in the conversation. And I appreciate a state like Rhode Island for rethinking that. Well, it looks like the, the leadership there took a look at what the systemic challenge mm-hmm. was not necessarily what the the what they could see like the iceberg tipping out of the water yep. the challenge isn't the inefficiency in the process the challenge is actually getting people back to work I love and that. how can we yeah. leverage the information that they're coming in because I've talked about it before. Governments are some of the largest creators, consumers, disseminators of of data, Yes, but they don't have the tools to turn that data into information to use it for good on behalf of their stakeholders. And that's a great example. I love, I love that. Oh my gosh, Brian, if I could speak to that for a second. I mean, this is something that kills me, right? Like I spent my entire career in government. I've never worked for a sort of big industry player or private technology player, which, you know, could be for better or worse, arguably, but what I've learned by spending my entire career in the government is that government is often seen as this like regulator. It's seen as the no, the no, uh, the no guy. What's the, what's the word? Not what's the opposite of yes, man. Is there like a no man? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, you just created him. You just created him. <laughs> anyway, you know, they're kind of seen as the people who say no, um, as opposed to the enablers, the innovators, the creators. And that really breaks my heart because that's a fairly new narrative, right? Like the U.S. government was, is the inventor of geospatial systems. Let's not forget that. We invented the zip code. We, we invented a lot of the highway and other infrastructure, even address postal system that 
now private players like Amazon get to use. We well, built before, all that. Before SpaceX existed, right. we put somebody on the moon as the government. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the, the, found, the, the sort of foundations of the modern internet were based on technology by the U.S. government. And that seems so far in the past today. But, you know, there was a time when employees of the government had access to computers and internet at their workspaces and not in their private spaces, not in their home environments. And today it's the exact opposite, right? Like the kind of access I as a federal employee have on my iPhone <laughs> could exceed the kind of capacity I maybe have on my work monitor. Um, and that's maybe a bad example, but you get the point, right? Like we've kind of, unfortunately, it's a different world, it's a different era today. And I really dream of an environment where the government is no longer seen as just a regulator, as an oversight player, but actually as a creator, as an innovator. And it really takes public servants like I think Scott and his team um, as just one example of many other good work, much other good work that's happening to really rethink the role of the government. Um, another, another sort of uh, uh, rant I can go on here for a hot second, if you will, is uh, if you'll allow me, <laughs> Brian is, hmm. um, I think that a lot of times public servants don't get an opportunity in the middle of managing all the backlog we have to manage of serving our constituents to take a step back, pause and say, whoa, I have an opportunity to redesign the way that I am serving this public, right? Like the government has no external competition for the things, the products and services that we built. Amazon has, I keep you going back to Amazon because you mentioned them now, sorry. Um, <laughs> Amazon has UPS, Brown, FedEx, there's all these competitors, but there's no, there's no competitor for unemployment insurance. It's just the government. If you are a constituent for the state of California, like I am, only the state of California, EDD, employment uh, or workforce development, will be able to serve me unemployment insurance. That's it. They have, we have a monopoly. And I realize that sometimes the narrative then is, oh, we have this internal competition, but we also then have an internal opportunity to redesign the public service, to rethink the way that we serve our, our public. And this is important because the way that our public services are designed, the way that our public products are designed are so a reflection of who and what the government currently values. Unemployment insurance, as an example, because I'm working on this right now, was designed in 1935 as part of the New Deal. And it was designed explicitly with the 1930s white male breadwinner in mind, because that was who we imagined at the time as being the, the sustainer of a family. That was already inaccurate in the 1930s, right? There were women who were working. There were people of color who were working. There were people in domestic and agriculture uh, industries that were explicitly not included in unemployment insurance. But if we continue to just build on and improve, iterate, if you will, on the old version of UI, of this, of this 1935 version of unemployment insurance, instead of being like, hold up, this was a racist and classist system from the get-go. How much better could we get if we just start at that starting point versus if we kind of reimagine it? Then we're not going to get so far. At the time that unemployment insurance was built in 1935, it already excluded 
65% of the black workforce at the time. 65%. As opposed to 27% of the white workforce at the time. That's nuts. That's actually nuts, right? I don't think we talk about that enough. So today, when we look at the stats and we see that nationwide, unemployment insurance still excludes 80% of the Black and Latinx workforce that is actually eligible for benefits, we're like, oh boy, there's an error in our system. And we have to recognize this isn't like a mistake error. This is a design flaw. This is something that was actually designed into the system from the time that it was built. And we have an opportunity right now because of all of the tragedy that our constituency across the country is facing to really rethink unemployment insurance so that we can, like you said, make it more delightful in an idealized state, make it more delightful for Mm -hmm. the next generation rather than just passing on what we've inherited from the 1930s. And um, I just, I, I hope that folks get a second to take a step back from the, the, overwhelming backlog of their claimants and just say, hold on, if we don't take up this opportunity right now to redesign, we're not going to get the opportunity again until the next big crisis. I think we're hitting a tipping point right now in government too, because the the way you described it, I think you're accurate. Empirically, government's been looked at as the regulatory arm of whatever's happening. And they just need to make sure that nothing gets too crazy, right? Right. And now I really view government as being the group that really wants to go do something, right. but doesn't have the resources to go do whatever it is they really want to go do in, in some mm-hmm. regards. This is the, uh, unemployment insurance is a great example. Um, but one of the changes that I've seen, um, and if I be perfectly candid, uh, is it, folks like you that are, are younger in age are coming in, taking leadership roles within government. Mm-hmm. And- you're driven. I mean, you mentioned at the very beginning of, of this uh, conversation that you spent your entire career in government. Mm-hmm. And that's not because you have to, it's because you chose to. Right. So you're in, you're in a position now where you see the opportunity to affect change. Mm-hmm. And you just talked about something, and this could be one of a million things that you're passionate about. And now you need the resources and the support to be able to go do that. So right. I, that's where I see the tipping point and really coming together. How do you see in, in this kind of shift, the private sector being able to come in and help government out in, and not in a, hey, let's let's sell you some technology so you can fix your problems yeah. in, in the whole IT modernization space, but how can we truly partner with, with you um, and overcome some of these challenges you're seeing and really drive your mission forward? Yeah. Yeah. I love this question. So I'm going to share some things that I, that may sound more nebulous, but we'll start there and then we can, we can kind of dive in. Um, The first thing that I think would actually be really helpful in some sort of partnership is just humility. There's this current notion that the government has a lot to learn from the private sector, which isn't untrue, but that makes it sound like the learning is, is one directional and it's not, it's a two way street. There's a lot that government, you know, one of my educational backgrounds is in urban planning. And one of the things I've learned from my urban planning background that I, that I bring to my work in government technology is 
just the complexity of government problems, right? And and the term complex problem here is is a is actually a formal urban planning term, meaning that there are multiple systems entrenched when you're addressing one thing. So you might think you're addressing just, you know, um, Medicaid or children's health insurance programs or unemployment insurance or SNAP. But the reality is that by when addressing, in this case, let's use a, a, an example of an unsheltered population, you're not just looking at the population that is unsheltered. You're also then looking at the veterans population. You're also then looking at probably youth. You're also probably looking at trans people. You're also probably looking at queer youth, right? Like you're looking at a variety of different constituencies just by looking at the unsheltered population. And so all of a sudden a solution around providing uh, housing, right? Um, And this is all very relevant for the Bay Area for me, is not just about providing more units of housing. It's also about targeting certain populations based on their area median income. It's also based on targeting certain locations based on where you might find more veterans or where you might find more people with mental health disabilities or what have you, right? And that complexity of problem, I think, is often really looked at from a reductive standpoint by the private sector when you begin to look at people as customers. But they're not customers. These are not people who are coming to your product or service by um, choice. They're coming by necessity because they can't make their ends meet because they don't have a house. They don't have the ability to pay their electricity bill, whatever it might be. And again, I, I tried to redefine that earlier between, you know, um, even citizen and constituent and especially between customer and constituent. And it might sound just like a, a syntactical difference, but it's really, really a big mindset difference. And I think it takes a, a bunch of humility from the private sector to come in and want to be supportive because it means that they also need to kind of check a lot of what they've learned in their experience, which is very useful, I imagine, in the private sector, but doesn't always translate well into the public sector. So the first thing I think I would ask is just a sense of humility. The second is what comes along with that humility is the willingness to truly learn from our public servants. Our public servants have been at their jobs, especially if their career, forever, forever. Chances are you cannot tell them something they haven't already heard, (laughs) right? And sometimes- Twice or three times probably. (laughs) Right, exactly. And sometimes I realize that that might come off as our public servants being, especially our career servants, being naysayers or change averse. They're not necessarily naysayers or change averse. One of the terms we came up with in Oakland City Hall was fantasticrats. These bureaucrats, you know, I know the word bureaucrat is such a loaded term, but they're they're really fantastic in that they have the experience and the exposure to have heard the same the same thing often multiple times. And that means they might come at it from a standpoint of much more understanding of the risks involved, but if there is an opportunity to redo something, chances are they're going to work with you to redo it because they want to serve their people. That's why they're taking on this job. They wouldn't be in this thankless job, frankly, often thankless job, if they didn't really care about serving their people, right? Well, and, 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 and I'll say this, the private sector too, I think often looks at risk aversion as an inhibitor to technology adoption. Mm. I think the thing that, mm. and I'll own this, we as a private sector, I mean, I'm in the private sector, we need to own is that it's not shareholder money, yeah. it's taxpayer money. Yes. So that risk aversion Correct. is protecting 
critical dollars that are coming literally from your pocket and mine. That's right. So th- they they own that responsibility. So it's not that they don't want to change. I I guarantee you nine out of 10 of them can't wait to adopt new technology and do these, these things, That's but right. they also can't afford to make that mistake with the money that's there because there's not some investor, some angel investor that's going to come in and throw more money at the problem. It's, it's no taxes get raised and it hurts their citizens and their stakeholders. So that's they don't right. want to do that. That's right. That's exactly right, Brian. And, and, and then the sort of the added layer to that. And the third point I was going to make is that another big difference is the relationship between the administrators at the, particularly at the state and local level and the constituents. Right. And what I mean to say here is government, even more so than nonprofit. And this, I, I should actually check myself and, and clarify for all of our listeners that check me on this. I don't know if this information is still accurate. It was as of 2018, but now it's 2021. I don't know, um, especially post COVID. But hmm. as of 2018, the government was the largest hire employer of women and minorities, more so even than nonprofits, especially at the state and local level. That is not to be taken lightly. Okay. This is a population that as a result has, I would argue, much greater understanding of the constituents in need at that state and local level than maybe other people might. And so the relationship then between administrator of service and recipient of service is much more closely aligned than it might be for a private sector administrator and a private sector service receiver. And that relationship is really, really valuable. It's an untapped potential, I think, of the way in which, and it's what excites me so much about state and local work, is when I'm working at the state and local level, I'm often speaking with women and people of color. And that is unfortunately, at the t- in, and in this moment, also similar to the populations that are then applying for those public benefits, right? And so the chance of this of the administrator of this public benefit program directly benefiting from the service or knowing people that benefit from the service is very high. It's very high. And the only time that you might be able to find a similarity is with like a company like Apple where every employee also probably owns an iPhone. I don't know. I'm making that up. That's I, I hate to be tongue in cheek about it. I'm sorry to all the Apple employees out there. But you know, it's it's that's it's a very rare relationship to have between administrator and recipient, right, of a product or service. Um, and I think it's a really big, it's it's an, an additional reason for what makes, I think, sometimes the relationship between private and public sometimes challenging or lost in translation. Um, well, it, it drives mission too. Exactly. Um, I mean, th- 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 there's a couple of things I want to unpack there. First and foremost, um, talking about how humility is an important aspect yes. of it. And and I'll I'll say to a lot of the people listening that are working in the private sector, I've had numerous conversations um, with Suzette Kent, the former federal CIO. And one of the things that she touches on, and it, she did on, on my podcast, was that the, the quote-unquote um, deployments that we call them, where you have executives coming from the private sector supporting in SES roles within government, to provide value isn't just so the government can pull value out of these folks. It's so people in high levels within the private sector can go back and and they can understand how the government works. How's the, how is the best way to partner with them? 
what are ways to navigate some of the technology issues that they have and some of the procurement issues they have so they can really drive value. So it is absolutely bi-directional. I think that's, that's a really important, um, takeaway here. And another thing that, that you've really brought to light as we're talking about some of these things is digital equity. And I think that is something that really came to the forefront when COVID hit on not just the government side, the education side, but let's just, we'll, we'll stick to government today. Um, but if you're in New York City or if you're in Oakland, California, where yeah. you are, Yushi, yeah. or versus being in some rural area in the middle of the country, chances are your access to services, it's going to look very different. Yep. I had this conversation yep. with uh, on, on my last episode with Linda Davis, who used to be the chief experience officer with the VA. And not only is she fitting the mold of what you just mentioned, where she was a consumer of these experiences because she was a veteran. She supported veterans. She was married to a veteran. Um, but she also understood what needed to drive forward change and understanding the digital equity because she served veterans in very rural areas and also in major cities. Um, how are you looking at the, 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 at the state level, at the local level, um, technology as a driver to provide that equity for citizens. This is this is so. I love this conversation so much, Brian. Uh, thank you again for for having me on here. Um, there are a variety of things I think that are that are happening right now. So the Code for America Summit just happened um, a couple weeks ago, and it was actually really incredible. I mean, it was it was heartening to watch the number of conversations across the country that are happening in Philadelphia, in New York City, um, where the presenters from these local governments shared out the way they're thinking about inclusive design in the digital delivery of their products. Okay, and this is a conference that's coming after a year plus of COVID, right? And so you could imagine that the conversation would be about mainframe failures, or it would be about the um, dollars we've poured into Deloitte that unfortunately aren't producing results for our constituents, right? There's a whole other conversation we can talk about. And instead, and instead, the summit, the running theme, I would say the accidental running theme was inclusive technology. It was digital equity. And there are a variety of things. I'm actually writing a piece um, as we speak about putting together a framework for the digital delivery of public benefits. And this comes out of a variety of the inequities we've noticed in the delivery of benefits programs, whether it be unemployment insurance or child welfare services, et cetera. And there are a variety of different things we can do. So let me, I can share some of the various pieces of the framework and I'll, I'll leave the, the rest. This will be a trailer <laughs> um, for, for other folks that they want to continue reading. But there is uh, a world called the world, a world of design justice. Okay. And design justice is a world that came out of sort of human centered design thinking where we realized, okay, human centered design on an island could accidentally design things that are actually really messed up. So uh, a really horrible example, but a simple one to get the point across is there was a research done on um, incarcerated trans folks and what might be the best, safest way for these people to be, um, unfortunately, you know, in a place of incarceration. And 
I will skip all the gory details. What came out of the research from just a human-centered design standpoint was effectively private pods, bubbles for these incarcerated trans folks. AKA, let's put it another way, uh, isolation chambers. Like that's what that was. That's horrible. That's horrible, right? Like my voice just jumped an octave. <laughs> it was horrible. And that's what came <laughs> out of this research from just a human-centered design standpoint, looking at this problem. But that's when the community was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This, is, this ain't okay, right? We got to actually have a justice approach to the work so that we don't end up with these kinds of solutions that are actually setting us back instead of bringing us forward. And so the World Design Justice was born. And um, back as a grad student at MIT, one of the things my uh, former advisor and dear friend Cesar McDowell and I worked on um, was basically amplifying a civic design framework that he had built for an urban planning and civic engagement space and applying it to technology. And so there are pieces of this civic design framework that are incredibly applicable for not just the uh, physical public spaces and physical infrastructure, but actually digital infrastructure as well, such as designing for the margins, designing with an eye to historical trauma, designing for both analog and digital, something that we've already spoken about today, designing for multiple languages, designing with an eye to systemic change. How do the infrastructure pieces fit together? right? The thing we also talked about earlier. Designing for cultural change, which I think is actually a really big part of product in the public sector. Product is a Trojan horse for culture change. It's a whole new mindset brought to the government. And all of these design elements are pieces of this framework that are now being talked about openly by everywhere from the Code for America Summit to our various local government offices so that we can deliver in a more equitable way. I, there's so many things to unpack there. And I know. <laughs> we're, we're running out of time. Um, w one of the things that I think is really important that you touched on, and I actually literally spoke about it at a conference today, mm. was around culture and change management. Mm -hmm. And what COVID really allowed some of these uh, senior leaders within government to do is accelerate change management. It, albeit in a draconian way, because there was no other choice. You shift to remote work mm -hmm. and there's only one option. It's this or nothing. Mm -hmm. So you have to choose this. And then you start to adopt it over time and it happens yeah. and it, it cut adoption rates in half. And at externally citizens adopted digital services because they had no choice. Again, a draconian measure right. that was put into place because of COVID. So now you can almost look at these as amplifiers yeah. to rolling out a digital transformation. And I firmly believe it's one of the reasons why we saw such an accelerated rate of digital transformation was because at the underlying level, culture had to adopt it. There wasn't a choice. So uh, right. I think you touched on something that's that's really important. Before we wrap up, Ayushi, yeah. I want to give you some uh, some time to leave any final thoughts you have for for the listeners out there. I'm full of thoughts, Brian. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I will end with maybe just recapping two things that I think we started to touch on earlier in our conversation. The first is that a better administrative experience makes for a better constituent experience when designing products for the government. 
I just want to say that again. Better administrative experiences make for better constituent experiences. This is really, really important for all of my fellow state and local government folks, whether you be a private sector player or a public sector player. Keep an eye to how you are amplifying and empathizing with the experiences of our frontline workers in state and local government, those who are delivering the services to our constituents in need. I think they're an often overlooked and untapped population with a tremendous amount of potential. They are not just naysayers. They are excited and active to be able to implement active and lasting change. And often they far uh, exceed terms in compare or durations in government compared to our SES, compared to our appointed folks, our elected folks. I mean, these are the ba- these people are the backbone of our civil service, of our governance. So that's the first thing. The second, in line with that, is something that I just mentioned, and I'll repeat again. Product in the public sector is a Trojan horse for culture change. Bringing in an iterative mindset, bringing in a product team, building in-house product capacity, allows for different kinds of voices to be amplified that otherwise may not get to be heard. It amplifies voices of users, both internal and administrative. It amplifies the ways in which we think about driving value based on outcome and value to the end user. And it allows for government to make sure that it is consistently aligning with what the people need, as opposed to what we planned to do based on last year's budget (laughs) predictions. (laughs) So I guess those are two final things I'll end with. This has been such a pleasure. There's so much more here, but um, it's, I'm so glad that you're facilitating this conversation with so many of us. I, I had I feel like we could have like four or five follow-on conversations <laughs> with the stuff we just talked about. This was this was great. I enjoyed it. I th- there's only and, and I'll be perfectly candid. There's only been a handful of people I've come into uh, conversation with where I looked at and said I'm I'm so glad that they are in the role that they were in and they were driving things forward. And I can now add you to that list because. Um, we need, especially in government, we need folks that are are not only a younger generation, but they are looking at things differently and inclusively. And it's not just for the majority of the people, it's for all the people. And that That's I right. think comes through loud and clear in what you're saying. It is it's obviously woven into the fabric of your personal mission. Uh, and and it, that's very obvious. So Thank you again for spending some time with me today. Thank you, Brian. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ChisterAB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.